customers want programs to be easy, they expect preferred treatment, and they want rewards. And that's a tough brief. <laughs> it's nothing new. Uh- that it's one of their biggest challenges is Marks and Spencer Sparks card. Because primarily that was built around giving members um, points and then using those points to get early access primarily to shopping evenings or to glimpses of new oh. fashion lines. In the end, nice idea, but it's that's the icing. What's missing is the cake. Uh, transactional loyalty is not dead. Transactional loyalty is, to me, the foundation of the ability to do emotional loyalty uh, because you need to understand which customers you want to give surprise and delight and special benefits to rather than all. Hopefully transactional loyalty is not dead because if it is, I'm out of a job. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Ian Pringle and this is the Loyalty Podcast from New World Loyalty. What you've just heard is a preview of some of our discussion in this podcast where we explore the question, is transactional loyalty dead? In the last few years, we've seen a seismic shift in the foundations that loyalty has been built on. Plenty finally launched in the US, but then closed in 2018. Amazon Prime was launched and now has over 18 million global subscribers. And this year, after 16 years, BP has dropped Nectar. And after 31 years, Shell has dropped Avios. And this month, Tesco has just launched a paid subscription service. With all these changes, is transactional loyalty dead? So to help me tackle this question, I'm delighted to be joined by Alan Lyers from the UK. Hi, Alan. Hello, Ian. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) Phil Gunter from Australia. Hi, Phil. Hello, Ian. And Craig Grimshaw from New Zealand. Hi, Craig. Hey, great. (laughs) Hey, Ian. Greetings. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, thank you very much for joining me, guys. The podcast wouldn't be the same without you joining. So um, to get things started tonight, can we please ask you each to give a quick introduction to yourselves and some evidence that you've seen in the past few years that loyalty is changing? So, um, Phil, would you like to kick us off on that one? Sure. Phil Gunter, um, best known for building Velocity um, over seven years from a small marketing program into a big separate business. Um, prior to that, ran rewards for Amex. Um, but for the last six years, been working in New World Loyalty when we've looked after pretty much clients in every sector. For me, there's an awful lot of change in the market, but there always has been. If you go back to every single period you go back, there's there's lots of A, change, but there's also lots of fashion, which I want to cover a little bit later. And I think there's the Loyalty is Dead is a, is a, is, is a big statement. And the, I just... Uh, well, agree. I think we're saying is transactional loyalty dead. We're not saying is loyalty dead. Yeah, and we'll cover it in some depth, but um, there's there's all these, it's like water flushing around a tank. Whenever someone's successful in something, everyone rushes over there and tries to copy it. And, and the reality is that there's been multiple types of loyalty forever, as there are now, and there are fads in the, and the, there are changing expectations and changing technology, etc. But for transactional loyalty, which is so big and successful to be dead, is, is, a, is a bold statement, which I just don't see. Okay, perfect. Well, and uh, and Craig, what would you say? Uh, Craig, yeah, Craig Grimshaw, done an array of loyalty for far too many years across uh, B two C, B two B, and B two E propositions, different verticals, different industries. Uh, the transactional loyalty is not dead. Transactional loyalty is, to me, the foundation of the ability to do emotional loyalty uh, because you need to understand which customers you want to give surprise and delight and special benefits to rather than all. 
And I think uh, that needs, we'll discuss no doubt an awful lot more about that further on the podcast. But uh, I think perceived collapse of transactional loyalty isn't correct. I think what people are starting to understand as loyalty is becoming more of a key component of the marketing function rather than being seen as a cost center, people are now looking at it and going, how can it work for me better rather than is the transactional loyalty component dead? Okay. And, uh, and Alan, what would you say about that? Yeah. Hi, um, Alan here again. Um, I guess I'm most famous for working for Virgin Atlantic for 12 years, running loyalty and ancillaries. Um, before that, a bit like Phil, I had experience in financial services in the energy sector. And these days, the last three years, I've been working with companies like uh, like New World, like Collinson, or B2B loyalty companies, as well as working with some brands directly in travel space, hospitality, financial services. Hopefully, transactional loyalty is not there, because if it is, I'm out of a job. Um, <laughs> not just you. And, and, and you know, you, you, you remarked, Ian, that, so what's going on? Why... What is the one trend that you're seeing? I think the one trend I'm seeing, finally, is that program owners, whatever sector they're in, recognize much more that they are in the redemption business rather than just purely the accrual of points business. And as that moves, as that challenge of redemption becomes more necessary to, to solve for many more customers, I think a lot of this oh dear, transactional loyalty, maybe it's not working, we used to go experiential, talks to the fact that still the majority of people in transactional loyalty businesses aren't necessarily, I'm sorry, programs, aren't necessarily getting the value. But then the answer isn't to pretend we can give everybody a great experience. So I'm sure we're going to talk more about that too. Yeah, well, thanks, Alan. And um, I'm Ian Pringle, so I've got 25 years experience in, in loyalty marketing. And I've worked for, I started at Shell UK and then worked at um, EDF Energy, um, managing the Nectar program for them. Um, I then spent seven years at Air Miles, which then became Avios, um, and uh, worked and and I've worked for a marketing consultant for several years, working for many many different brands in all sorts of different areas of loyalty. The reason for starting this podcast or the idea for this podcast came from when I attended the loyalty surgery last month, where a lot of the theme of, of many of the talks was a move towards emotional loyalty, um, and that triggered the idea for this podcast. Um, since then. Um, AMIA has issued a research piece called Global Emotional Loyalty. And in there, they look at um, the reasons why people take out and, and uh, loyalty programs, but also they look at your expectations of what you expect from a loyalty program, and then looked at whether those loyalty programs were going to impact experience. And I thought this was a great place to look to see about is transactional loyalty dead? And what you find in there is is they, they it's a great report, actually. And it, has, it covers a lot of countries, and it covers a lot of regions and shows the differences between the regions. And what it shows for me is in in the US, the reasons, the things that people value about loyalty programs are rewards and and ease of data, ease of taking part and data and service. They come out about 25, it's all about 25%. Of, whereas in the UK, it's very different. Ease comes out at 32% and rewards at 26 And then when you look at what are the things that they expect from a loyalty program, in America, it's pretty, pretty even, the, the leading pawns are pretty even about ease of participation and data and service. Whereas in the UK, it's much more about preferred treatment, which to me says if you and they then said that the, in the UK, you're less likely to change behavior. Now, that's a lot of data. And, I, and have a look at the, the report because it, it, I recommend having a read. But what I take from that in, in summary is that UK customers want programs to be easy. They expect preferred treatment and they want rewards. And that's a tough brief. <laughs> it's nothing new. <laughs> and they're the least likely they're the least likely of any market to change their behavior. 
<laughs> so I think what I summarize it, I don't think transactional loyalty is dead because in each of these markets, rewards is either the highest or the second highest thing that what people are going to value or what people would join a program for. But I think they've just become more demanding. And rewards are now just a, they're a table bet. They're, you know, they, they are what people expect from a loyalty program, but now we have to deliver more. What, what yeah, do you think you got about me very that? Careful, you you got yeah. to be really careful because you're right. Um, if you join a rewards program, you do expect something back, right? Of course you do, right? and that's why you would join it logically. But where where a lot of programs miss out is they they don't meet the basic expectation, and then they try to do some other things to cover the cracks. And you can't do that. Missing, uh, not meeting an expectation has much more impact than get doing something over and above. Um, I think and, yeah, I, I, that's a good point. A very good point. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Get your base and, right. And Alan, we've talked about this before where, um, you know, especially frequent flyer programs can now redeem for lots of things. And I've always felt that not redeeming for a flight or cash off a flight to me feels like a broken promise. Absolutely. Think, Ian. Absolutely. Yeah. Ian. And I think I think the reality is and, and, you know, we need to think about the customer, the segment, the market we're thinking about. You know, in the UK here, we're going through an election and there's a lot of talk about austerity and people's incomes and being able to cope and addicted to credit. The reality in this country, the average wage is about £29,000 a year. Um, If you take out all the things you have to spend on, your discretionary spend in terms of luxuries, holidays, restaurants, is about four or £5,000 a year. So for the average person, if they were getting 1% back on that, that's £50 of value, now, you might be able to turn that £50 of value into a perceived value of £100 or £150 by offering whatever your business is, distressed inventory. But it's precious little value, really, versus the promise. I think we just have to be honest. Transactional loyalty absolutely works, but it is primarily successful and aimed at mass affluent, higher net worth customers, people with more money in their pocket. And if you look at the airline experience, you know, airline programs are so important to airline performance. They are such big profit centers, as we know, in their own rights. But if you actually look at how many customers are being served, it's only really 20% tops. They're actually making the most of the program. However, unfortunately, that's the 20% of people that most organizations want. So transactional loyalty absolutely works for people with money in their pocket. Question, what do we do for the rest? Yeah, it's a good point. I agree. So the, the one thing I just also wanted to raise, and it's, it may be because some of our vast listener network may not be too aware, is what is the definition of transactional loyalty? Because if I look at the introductory piece you did, Ian, it was talking about the pulling out of by the fuel companies from retail coalition programs. And Plenty was a sort of retail coalition program on the back of a of Amex credit card. Let's, let's make it... A, be a very um, just a simple definition for what a transactional loyalty is that we're talking about. So we've got a, a consistent base for vi- for listeners to get their head around. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it's a good, really good point, actually. Yeah. Yes. Because the way I'm viewing the transactional loyalty component is a points based program, or it could be any pro- points or anything else. But it's a, a simple. I I I have points. I shop. Sorry, I shop. I earn points. I then redeem those points for something, and it. And the the thing, and that then becomes what a transactional loyalty program is. To then understand more about, to understand my customer base, I need to have that because that then defines who I need to reward more because I want want to reward the customers for the right behaviour. And I think if going on Alan's comment is that twenty percent, they're the ones you really want to reward, just like every loyalty program. 
20-80-20 rule. I want to look after my uh, top 20% with a better, more compelling experience, which could be more ease of, of um, spend, more surprise and delight capabilities, um, the various components. The thing I've seen around the retail coalition piece, and I was just talking with a client on Tuesday about it, was the challenge you have in a coalition model is that if you're a BP or a Shell, you're providing points and uh, you're providing money into that coalition program to uh, to reward the right behaviour. But for, as soon as that customer earns points, the relationship tends to go, and it comes the redemption point is with that coalition brand, not with the fuel company. And that is, and the redemption, as Alan was going, that's your moment of truth. That's where the customer yeah, sees agree benefit that of the program, I, 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 but the benefit is goes to the coalition program, not to the provider of the points. Yeah, I think that's problematic. And um, Shell at the same conference said they would never enter another coalition, which is yeah. which is a, a very strong thing to say when you're already a member and in fact own some of the coalitions. So they have five; they're members of five coalitions around the around the world, um, and even have. <laughs> A stake in several. Um, so it's I think a shot across a strong, the bow, isn't it? Well, it's, it's it's a strong it's a strong thing to say. And also, it's really interesting what you said about the the, the, the um, definition of transactional because the Shell loyalty proposition they've launched in the UK they're saying is a is a emotional program rather than transactional program. But it does track how many visits you make to the service station, you know, and it gives you a reward after the tenth visit. So I think they're still keeping the score. It's not as yeah. if they're saying. Actually, there is no method of tracking value or, or frequency in here. But that seems strange that they would go down that. Sorry, it's a, I don't know if it's a topic for that. But it seems strange going for tracking for visitation because it's almost like the airlines uh, in the old days were tracking based on sectors rather than dollar value. And well, the, I think the they're tracking that, the number the of visits. The drives your business is your dollars. But they're tracking the number of visits, but they're also then tracking what the spend is. You know, it is a transactional cut. You are you are spending on the thing, and then they're giving you a reward that I guess is 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 related to what you have spent in those ten visits. Okay. Um, it's an interesting way of managing your liability because they're not actually telling you what you're going to get for the tenth visit. <laughs> There's your surprise. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean we've we've seen. I mean, good luck to them. We've seen programs that base that whole proposition on experiential, some sort of preferred access. I think the best example of a card of a program in the UK that's failed recently, still going, but they've rec- they've they've acknowledged that it's one of their biggest challenges is Marks and Spencer Sparks card, because primarily that was built around giving members um, points and then using those points to get early access, primarily to shopping evenings or to glimpses of new yeah. fashion lines. In the end, nice idea, but it's that's the icing. What's missing is the cake. And one of the things, one of the things that Ian, you talk about a lot, is share of wallet. And um, you know, this is also very important. So back to that, you know, one of the things, I think, one of the best programs at the moment, certainly in the UK, is Tesco. Because what Clubcard are clever at doing? I mean, the average shopper in the UK spends no more than hundred pounds a week. The average family, and they are shopping much more now across different supermarket brands. If Tesco's can secure, say, seventy percent of that, that's seventy pounds a week. Over a year, it's three and a half thousand pounds. That's thirty-five pounds worth of value. Now, obviously, what they've done to to try and improve upon that, they've done some fantastic deals with partners. Pizza Express, I think, is one of the most popular, where you can treble the value. They have many many partners like that, where you can treble the value, um, and at least even if you're on a modest income, you've suddenly got a decent amount of money, a hundred pound voucher, you can actually have a nice meal with your family with. That works. So even though the volume is low, 
of spend. If you're the brand, I want the customer that spends £500 a week. But there's actually some real perceived value there. That, to me, is absolutely a brilliant example of transactional loyalty because it plays to leveraging your loyalty to me, in this case, share of wallet of, of, uh, of spend of supermarket, and rewarding you with value you can't get other than through this program and an experience that you can, you know, it's a thank you experience for your family or whatever you want to call it. So that's a, a superb example, in my opinion, of transactional loyalty end to end. Yeah, when I posted something about Tesco change on on LinkedIn, on our on our hashtag, which is hashtag loyalty podcast, um, Steve McArdle, who is my client at, at uh, Tesco, who, who worked at Tesco for many, many years. And in fact, he's he's quoted in scoring points as one of the guys that set up that reward program. I'm sure you know him, Alan. Um, his comment yeah. was he'd be interested to see how the Tesco Plus proposition links back to the offers that they're giving to customers because his th- thought that he posted there was saying that Tesco customers do compare their offers and if people are in Tesco Plus are getting the same offers as the people in it, that are in Clubcard, then they will complain about that. You know, and, I, and I'm wondering how they're going to manage the differential of the offers they're getting with Tesco Plus compared to the people. And I think that's something we'll just have to see over time. Because if I was paying $7.99, I'd be, I'd be expecting significantly more value than the standard Tesco customers. And they do talk. Oh, well, it was Steve's, Steve's theory anyway. Um, yeah, so move, moving on to the next question. You know, what, what factors do you think are driving these changes? Um, Phil, do you want to go first on that one? Oh, there's two things. One, you can go to the normal stuff, like technology, customer expectations, all that stuff. There's a, I think there's a push from transactional loyalty. Uh, I, I hate to say it, but some of the, the, the large coalition programs have got a bit lazy and complacent, and that, that leads to opportunity for for them to under-deliver de- on their partnerships, and that leads to some of the partners leaving, which you're seeing. But at the same time, you're seeing new guys come up with, with clear thinking, being successful, and then everyone wants a copy. That, that, and that's fashion is what I talk about, is that people, the number of times people call me in and say, I want an Amazon Prime, or <laughs> I want uh, a Velocity Freaking Flyer, or a Qantas Freaking Flyer, um, because they've seen someone else be successful, and that's driving a lot of the, the thinking around change. But it's the wrong way to start. You've got, you, you, you can't start with looking at what someone else has got and thinking, I want a bit of that. You've got to start with what you've got, what your business has got, what, what your customers know, think, and do, and build a, a proposition which speaks them, which pretty much would include some element of transactional stuff that we talked about the cake, but then um, an understanding and an engaging through the emotional side as well. It, it's very, very difficult to, I think, to separate the two out and Programs that do try to be just one or the other will almost certainly struggle. Yeah, and I, I think I'd add to that. The traditional loyalty programs, their engagement has definitely waned over time. I mean, I've got a graph which shows, um, which I'm happy to share if people contact me on LinkedIn, is, is you know, that they have, have been declining over time. There's no doubt about it. But yet, I think the loyalty program is a, is a contract between the customer and the, and the company. And the customer gains value, we gets giveaways, basically, because they know they're giving something back to the brand. And in, in, in the past, that's been value of data, you know, so Tesco and other big companies have put great value to that transactional information they get on the loyalty program. But now you can get that from a number of sources. And I just think that contract balance has changed. And the traditional loyalty programs are left with a, a value that they previously had and previously put on the value of data and the value of what they were getting from it. And now they're trying to grow back from that as customers are less engaged. How, how do we think about that? Do you think, have we seen that in the market? Uh, I, I, so I still think a, a well 
designed, well-implemented logic program is, is able to significantly improve your, your, your data. I know there's other ways of getting the data, but um, there's, there's, there's nothing like a really good, well-designed logic program to really enhance it. So um, I, I still think data is essential to it, and I do think that what's going to happen over, over the coming years is that, is that more and more programs will get better at actually using it. There's there's a lot of, there's a lot of talk out there, and there are some some programs and a lot of really successful ones now are using data really well. But there's an awful lot. When I lift the bonnet, there's they, they collect it and they don't do anything with it. So the, yeah, this, I've the, seen that a lot. You, you, you're right, Ian. Like there's a theory around you have these programs to collect data, and they collect the data and do nothing. And that that leads then to ultimately what they they strip away some of the value to customers, and and then lead to disengagement. Yeah. Because there's a customer expectation to use the data. If they've agreed yeah. for the data to be passed through and leveraged, then they expect it to be used. And yet, when there's when it's not being used, that's when the dissatisfaction works comes into place. Well, although, you know, I think I, th- I think I've said this before in the podcast. I think different categories have different needs for the data. When I was at EDF, the only data we really used from Nectar was date of birth, which was a comp- <laughs> you know that, that there wasn't enough value in that. I think. I think there's a, a, a very large number of, of customers, and I think we've all seen this in the airline industry in particular, but it's amongst other industries, who really understand these programs. Probably not a large volume in terms of people, but certainly a large volume in terms of the transactions. And they almost don't want you. They don't care. They'll give you all their data because they recognize that to be in the program and to collect this currency, they have to uh, expose themselves, if you like, from a data perspective. But then they will absolutely, they will absolutely then maximize and optimize the opportunities. They will seek and find out, for example, if it's a currency, where that currency can be earned, as, as airline programs you know, tend to offer significant numbers of ways of collecting currency on the ground. Almost there's a whole bunch of customers that are playing the programs and don't need and don't feel they need to be recognized in a super personalized way. I'm not saying that's the majority of customers, but what's interesting about that group of customers, certainly in my experience, is if you're aware of those customers and they exist and who they are, you can then tune your program so they play games with your program, but behave the way you want them to behave. I mean, we talk about transactional loyalty programs as if there's no emotion. I mean, if anyone hasn't been to a focus group with the top tier customers in a frequent flyer program, you try and tell them when, you, when a change is happening and you want to see what emotional reaction they have. I mean, I've, <laughs> I've, been, at a, I've been at a focus group where there's been a, mem- a gold member of the British Airways frequent flyer program you know, literally banging on the mirror, demanding to see the, ma- the managing director about a change that we proposed in a focus group. And if that's not an emotional reaction to something, then I don't know what is. He was literally banging on the window saying, I want to see the person who had this idea. This is ridiculous. We've given you this amount of money and you treat us like this. Yeah, but the thing is, right, but the thing is, there's, there's emotional element all the way through. Right? It's very easy to get caught up on, on um, yeah. the, the top-end frequent flyers, which are, no, I've seen that. I, I have seen that right? So a number of times. But is it, and that is 100% true, but there's an emotional element to even the most basic transactional loyalty program because it, it drives an expectation and where, whereas an expectation if you if you miss the expectation then there's a feeling of of disappointment and that feeling of disappointment which is an emotional response leads to 
activity, which is often a negative activity. The, the other one I want to mention quickly um, is there's a, on these calls, it's quite easy to talk about the top end of programs. And, and we even here, we talked about the, the, the heavy lifting is done by, by a small number of people. Not all that is true, right? Especially when you're talking about things like frequent flyers and etc. Reality is that a lot of the benefit for the company of these programs is actually driven by inflate increasing the frequency a little bit by the by the long tail and, and I'll give you an example I, I did um, a pro project for a fast food company their their segment one which was bought religiously bought um, from them every single week on the same night every single week uh, the program had to obviously meet their expectation of being rewarded right but they couldn't get anything more out of them and, and nor should they even try to get anything more out of them. And yet, that, that company had a huge, huge tail of people that were only buying once or twice a year. And by in, 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 just enabling them or encouraging them to buy just one more time, the numbers were fantastic, absolutely fantastic. And the challenge was, how do you design a program so they could encourage the extra one from the, from the infrequent without costing an arm and a leg to the people that were, were never going to be able to buy more? Yeah. So it's almost like inverse loyalty. And so do we think that if we're going to look at transactional loyalty programs, is emotional loyalty programs a real alternative? I mean, who's doing this best and what do you think about that? How about Craig? Well, I think, I think if, we step, if we step out of loyalty and just think about who commands the biggest premiums for emotion, and it's probably, it's, it's luxury good manufacturers, it, it's watch manufacturers. If you think about a Rolex, you could spend 25000 on a Rolex, it tells the time, which is what any watch that you can get from £10 onwards does. It's how that brand association makes me feel and what it says about me. So in a way, those organisations have derived the most emotional loyalty um, from really making their brands work. If we bring it down to more a loyalty context, I think a company that's doing a great job in the uh, clothing sector is Nike at the moment. Um, and they genuinely tap into emotion um, and they sort of do it. They, they tap into two sorts of emotion. They, they tap into being athletic, but they also tap into being a rebel. It's brilliant. Sounds and, like you, Alan. And <laughs> well, well, apart from the athletic bit and the rebel bit, they're absolutely right. Yeah. But, 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 the, um, but I think where we, where, we, where we come to, I mean, I'll give you an example of where I feel like, Mr. Big, I'm a member of EasyJet Plus. I pay £210. I pay for the privilege of getting on a bit earlier and having a free front of cabin seat. Yet I, and I get, you know, and there's an arrow. The only user experience that's different is an arrow um, that you point at when you get to the checkout experience, check-in experience. And then there's a different pen, right? And the difference between the pen that you're in if you're an EasyJet Plus customer and the pen you're not is a bit of rope. But you feel great and you feel entitled. And yeah, you get differential service. But, you know, we're going to talk about subscription in a bit, I guess. But it's a great example. It's not quite Rolex, but it sort of is for 200 quid. And, um, and I think it's, it, as we think about emotional loyalty, let's think about how you can charge for it. That's a good, yeah, point. I've, That's a good point. I've got... The thing I was thinking about emotional loyalty is actually it becomes a bigger thing than a, a typical loyalty program because you tend you need to look at the underpinning brand values of the company or the product offering or whatever it is and ensure that 
there is an emotional tie into that because there's some products and services that are very functional and you're not going to get an emotional loyalty bias to them other than being very rational. But there's there's been a bit of banter, and being from uh, New Zealand, you've got to promote a New Zealand company who are global. But there's a company called Allbirds and they who are, provide fantastic shoes, all made out of merino wool. Everything is environmentally friendly. And then there's been a bit of banter going on recently because Amazon have launched a copy which don't have the same underpinning values. And yet the strength of the work that they've done to make, ensure and reinforce the proposition and everything they do to make sure it's environmentally friendly resonates with their users, the customer base really, really well and provides a, a, um, a, a strong barrier to move to a, a cheaper copy because they see the more emotional um, tie into the environmentally friendly proposition as being far more relevant than going to a, 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 rip, a, a rip off a copy. And I back that up. I mean, there's a report by Motif that they presented at Loyalty Surgery as well. And they, they did some really interesting stuff. They looked at acquisition, retention and spend, because that's what you're trying to get out of loyalty programs. But then they looked at five different um, attributes of a brand. They looked at quality, value, sharing, closeness and magnetism. And we've, we've talked about all those things. So quality is exactly what it says on the tin. It's where the shop is and the is it good? And then value is its price and the quality and value we all know about. And then sharing is, is MPS score, although MPS is, is often a hollow promise because people say they'll share and say they'll tell their friends and family, <laughs> but very few do. And then there's then with what we just talked about there, Craig, is closeness and magnetism. So closeness is I'm willing, I'm working with this brand because it means something to me. And I feel that they're a customer service driven brand and I, I feel a, a, an, an affiliation to it. And then magnetism is what Alan just talked about, you know, Rolex and these types of brands that have have a bigger um, a bigger draw than just their, these, those other five factors. And what they did, which is really interesting, is they took these five factors and compared it to, against acquisition, retention, and spend. And what they found is acquisition is absolutely driven by quality, value, and, sh- and sharing, you know, the NPS score, which is why everyone asks about NPS and why, you know, you, you have to have every, every product has to pass muster. But then closeness and magnetism and retention was pretty flat across those five but actually what they found was spend the 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 lifetime value of a customer was driven by the last two closeness and magnetism and what they're saying there is this thing about cognitive dissonance that we've known for a while where customers need to they might transact with you because of a transactional loyalty program or because there's 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 a there's a left brain thing which says it's logical reason to do that but unless there's some other bigger thing that they don't that where there's a bigger affiliation with the brand and that's why i think all these brands are spending much more money on these areas and i think that a really good example of this is with shell where what i really like about that program is we can argue whether it's transactional or not but they still give the free coffee but actually now they're giving offset and they're just giving it to customers carbon offset and i think this is a great example of where i think this is going where um if if loyalty programs are the table stakes then the emotional loyalty and those things about closeness of magnetism are going to become stronger and stronger. Hmm. What do we think about that? I mean, does that, does no, that make like sense it. to us? Yeah, I like, I like that because it resonates with the brand and it's a forward thinking, uh, the offset piece, which re- links into the, uh, I think podcast three is around the flight shaming piece. It, like to me, it links into the brand proposition of them going forward. How do we change and how do we move and how do we then move our customers? Because some... As we know, some customers aren't as um, fleet of foot to take a move. How do you change the mindset? And they're taking a proactive approach to that by doing that offset piece, which 
links into and the not brain, leaving it up which to the works really well. To do. I think that's the key thing. They're not leaving it up to the customer to do because no. we know that you know only less than one percent of people have offset flights, even though that's yeah. been. A, 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 but actually, what they're saying is, no, I will. But what's interesting is they're saying, but you have to be on a loyalty, loyalty program to get it, which I, I really mm. like, and that, no, that like that's playing to the closest of magnetism. Yeah. What do you, what do you think about that, Craig? Uh, Phil, you've been quiet on this. Yeah, the, the, what, what they've done, which is what you, what you need to be do to do to be successful, is they looked at their core business, they looked at their customers, and they thought about how their customers think and feel, and they designed a proposition or a loyalty proposition around that. And that is what success is. You start with your, what you are, what, you, what your core business is, what your core yeah. customers think and do, and you design from there. Because my worry when we talk about examples is that people hear about the example and they and they they, they hear about the loyalty aspects of that example. They don't they don't understand how it how it's underpinned by that exactly. core business. Yeah. And it goes back to a comment you made before, Phil, at the beginning was around the I want a program because I've seen one program like this and I've seen another program like that, and that's totally not the way to go because it it'll exactly. be a waste of money. Yeah, even even with that that brilliant example there, um, the offset stuff, it's, it's obviously really really relevant for for oil company um, yeah. but if, if you're if you're someone which is just really not related and you try and lead with a we're we're going to have a, a a sort of carbon neutral thing and and, and no one no one sort of gets the link yeah. then it, it falls flat it just it looks like you're sticking some lipstick on yeah. um, that, that's very true I, I think it has to resonate with the brand and i think when, when i worked at shell years and years ago i remember being in a, in a room where they told us to share the, the values and they say, these are the value. This is what the brand stands for. And I was thinking, I, I can't see that at all. Whereas I, I do think, I do think what, what they're doing now, res, that, that program does resonate. But, but you look around lots of these transactional loyalty programs and they don't. And I think especially when you're in a coalition, to your point, Craig, because how can a coalition resonate with your brand? And that, that's a tricky one to pull off. Hey, who is the brand? I mean, tr- I mean this, is, this, this podcast is about transactional loyalty. If I think about what we we're just talking about with Cher, what's really interesting about this is they have come up with something for now that gives them a point of difference and probably does resonate with many of their customers. You know, it's, it's absolutely top of mind that the environment and the climate at the moment. However, what happens when every other petrol station introduce offsets? Hey. They just say, right, we assume every, every car user does 10,000 miles and we're going to invest in offsetting X amount. And every time someone fills up, we'll offset it. Loyalty program dead. This is what happened to Sparks, you know, the M&S card. The reason they're desperately trying to relaunch it is because it's got no long-term commercial viable proposition. Apart from uh, exposing people to earlier um, sales and, and the odd experiential event within store, the key value, your points, you pick a charity you like. And, you know, imagine five years ago when you're designing that, you're going to be sitting in a focus group, you're going to be sitting in the board meeting, you're going to be being, everybody's going to be patting each other on the back, clapping at each other. What a brilliant idea. A loyalty program that donates to charity instead of it being about money. Guess what? It doesn't work. It doesn't work because there is no, if people want to give to charity, people will give to charity. If they want to donate to their specific charity, they'll do whatever they want to do. What the problem is, is the board of M&S are gone, hold on a minute. What has it done? How much has it cost? This much. What has it done? Not enough. And unfortunately, I think we we in the loyalty business, we are the you know we are the non-colouring in uh, portion of the marketing department. Yeah. And the minute we move lot. back in, the minute we move back towards centre, be careful because suddenly there isn't an economic rationale for what for rationale for what we're doing because the incremental investment in loyalty, as we know, loyalty 
is still probably the least most invested in of the marketing uh, in the, within the marketing mix. And certainly from a channel perspective, it's increasing, but we have to be careful that we don't build unsustainable businesses. You know, transactional loyalty for me means sustainable loyalty. Yeah, and I think that comes back to the, the loyalty contract between what the customer's getting in return of what the company's getting in return. And, um, and you know, um, Phil, we talked about this the other day. Personally, I, I think there's a, there's a really strong equation that we all know about, but we won't get into it in this podcast. All those numbers need to be filled in and it has to, absolutely has to wash its face. You know, we're not in the business of giving money away and not getting a return. Absolutely yeah. not. No, exactly. stand by that. But the easiest so way finally, of making a program work is actually to is to step into the business, understand the business, and drive real business upside. Uh, yeah. Not not focus on the loyalty program. So the loyalty program economics are always a subset of the group economics. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Absolutely, absolutely, hundred percent, Phil. Yeah. So guys, can we? In the final few minutes, can we go around and each give two pieces of advice you'd give program managers? So two pieces of advice based on what we've just talked about, about is transactional loyalty dead and the problems with transactional loyalty. So, um, Craig, would you like to go first on that one? No worries, Ian. Is it the two pieces of advice I'd give is keep doing transactional loyalty, leverage your data, well, understand your data, leverage your data, focus on your customer and their expectations and link it in with your, anything in with your brand. Thanks, there, Craig. And uh, Alan? I, I would urge any program manager to think first and foremost, I mean, Phil's already said it, I'm stealing it, to think first and foremost of what is the program doing for the core business? And fundamentally, the core business is the customer and however you measure satisfaction, NPS, and the bottom line. And as long as you can demonstrate a clear line of sight between the loyalty effort and commercial performance, you yeah. will then have the latitude to develop more creative things to try and engage customers that are less engaged at the moment and hopefully make that mass that's already hopefully critical for you more important, ultimately in terms of the core business. But if you can return a commercial, uh, you know, if, if there's a, a commercial contribution with the loyalty effort itself, then that's icing on the cake. No, thanks, Alan. And Phil? Um, in addition to all that, um, I, no, I'd say be careful when you're copying. Be careful looking at someone else and seeing success and not understanding why it's successful. But embrace change. Be brave. I, I always say, be brave. I, I don't. I don't like looking at other programs and trying to copy. I like looking at the business, try and design something which really does connect. Because all the really successful programs have done something different. They've done something different. They've gone put lead with their chest. Um, and as long as you get the maths right, these things can be brilliant. Thank you for that, Phil. If I could summarise our discussion, I think what we're all saying is that transactional loyalty is not dead, but care needs to be taken to ensure that your programme resonates with your customers and your brand if it's to survive this tough market. So thank you to my guests, Phil Gunter, Alan Lias and Craig Grimshaw, and thank you for listening. If you like the podcast, please share, like and comment using the hashtag loyaltypodcast on LinkedIn, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you and goodbye.